Hey everybody, welcome to episode 16 of Craven Craven. I am one of your Craven Craven co-hosts, Patrick Bromley, joined as always by my co-host, Heather Wixen. Hi, Heather. Hello, Patrick. Sorry. I tried. I was trying really hard to get my, my ghost voice voice down. But you it's sounded just, just like him. I think I sounded more like uh, Jill in part four trying to sound like him. <laughs> when, they're on the, when she's on the phone, she's like, what's your favorite scary movie? Spoilers so. for part four. Yes. We'll, well, we'll get there in a few episodes. I know. It's crazy that like we're doing mostly Scream movies from here on out. Yeah, I'm not complaining though. No, all right. not at all. All right. Yeah, this is this is my time. I've been waiting. <laughs> well, as you just pointed out, we're extending uh, F this movie fest by a week by sticking in the '96 zone. Uh, Erica and I did our favorite movies of 1996 for F this movie fest, and this was my number five. So I have a lot of love for Scream, but not as much as you. I don't think. I don't know anybody who has as much love for it as you do. Well, apparently on the internet, uh, there's a whole lot of people, uh, but they're wrong. Um, I'm curious, what are your other, what are your four that rank higher than Scream now? Hold on. Uh, the four were Bound, Heart Eight, That Thing You Do, and Fargo. Mm, okay. Yeah. I could see Bound and Fargo. All right. Well, it's just you know, right. personal okay. preference. All right. All right. Scream rules. All right. Okay. All right. All right. I didn't want to start off on a on a bad foot or something here. No, no. I have nothing bad to say about Scream. Uh, let me read the IMDb plot synopsis. A year after her mother's death, Sydney Prescott and her friends start experiencing some strange phone calls. They later learn the calls are coming from a crazed serial killer in a white face mask and a large black robe looking for revenge. This is a terrible plot synopsis. His phone calls usually <laughs> consist of many questions, the main one being, what's your favorite scary movie? Along with much scary movie trivia, ending with bloody pieces of innocent lives scattered around the small town of Woodsboro. <laughs> I'm on IMDb and I was like, Joss Oren, that is quite the uh, description of Scream. And I even I, I, I even switched it to present tense in real time. Nice. Because I nice. feel like plot synopsis, synopses should be written in present Synopsi? tense. Synopsi? Yeah. Yes. I do like the short one, though. A year after the murder of her mother, a teenage girl is terrorized by a new killer. Although, is it a new killing? We won't get into that. Yeah. Uh, who targets the girl and her friends by using horror films as part of a deadly game. Yeah, that's a better Interesting. one. Interesting. Yeah. But, you know, good, good on you, Joss, for, for really putting <laughs> a little put a little extra work in. Well, scroll down and read the one uh, <laughs> under spoilers. Oh, what's under spoilers? My oh, God. it's basically like a short story. It's the entire plot of the movie written out, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. So good thing I didn't read that one. Yeah. I mean, at this point, though, like, has anybody, like, who's listening to this not seen Scream? 
I hope not. If you haven't, turn this off. Go watch Scream. Come back and listen to this, because obviously we will be spoiling Scream. And one of the advantages that Scream has over many of its slasher contemporaries is that it is a really good mystery. That's one of the things that I've always liked about the franchise, is that they emphasize the mystery aspect, unlike... Um, a Friday the 13th sequel or a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel where it's like, we know who the killer is, that's who we're there for. Um, we're actually sort of siding with the victims and trying to figure out who the killer is in the Scream movies. Yeah, I think for me, as somebody who grew up on the Scooby-Doo cartoons, like that's what I think why Scream always appealed to me. And I think especially, and we'll talk about when we get to 3, but I think because 3 leans into it even more. Yes. Um <laughs> let's 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 you know let's let's wait till we get there patrick um but i think for me like this just felt like grown-up scooby-doo yeah because you're basically you know you have to unmask the killer and find out what's going on and what their complicated motives were um but it's just a whole lot gorier and you know a little more sexual um, I never got a lot of sexual vibes from the Scooby-Doo cartoons. Maybe I need to go back and rewatch them as an adult. Were you paying attention um, to Daphne? I mean, I was. Yeah, I was always a Velma, though. Come on. <laughs> sure. So the, mouse, the mousy girl with glasses. They sure. Got it going on. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. So, and also, uh, who, you know, who, who doesn't like Shaggy? Everybody loves the stoner guy, right? Speaking of Matthew Lillard. Matthew Lillard, right? Full circle. Yeah. Woo. I didn't even have to try for that one. Um, yeah, I. So I'm. I'm curious, like, what your first experience of Scream was, because for me, I remember seeing commercials for this when I was. It was my freshman year of college, and I was down at Illinois State, and I found out uh, via my ex because we were still we were just dating at that point because uh, we were high school sweethearts, um, and he said, "Oh, Yorktown is doing a Thursday night preview." Of the new Wes Craven movie. And I had finals on Thursday. Because he was going to come pick me up on Friday. And that was going to be the start of Christmas break for me. And I was like, well, holy crap. I need to see the new Wes Craven's, you know, quote unquote, scary movie, if you will. Um, the very moment it comes out. So I actually moved around my psychology final so I could leave school on Thursday to get home for this because that is how much I needed to see this movie that night. Yeah. And I'm curious, did you go opening weekend? Were you there? I was there Friday weekend? first show. Okay. In a mostly yeah, I... empty theater. And it was very interesting to see it that way and really fall in love with it and really feel like I remember after the Drew Barrymore sequence, I rarely get like, scared during horror movies but i remember at the end of the drew barrymore sequence like checking myself and being like all right this is pretty intense <laughs> like i'm definitely <laughs> reacting to this in a way that i don't usually in horror movies and then i saw it a couple weeks later because this was like one of those slow build horror movies that took a couple weeks before it became this pop culture sensation and i went on like a like a first date with someone and it had moved from like this little movie theater there that I saw it in on the first day to one of the huge outside Woodfield theaters. And it was a packed house on a Saturday night. And it was like gangbusters. It was like, like the opening of Scream 2. It really was. And, and, and the girl I was on the date with was reacting the way 
people do on TV shows to horror movies where she's screaming and burying her head in my shoulders. And I know where all the jumps are and I'm just waiting for everything and just watching the play the audience. It was both of those viewing experiences were so different, but so effective in completely different ways. It was so awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because of the, the first night we saw it at the preview, uh, our theater was pretty crowded at Yorktown. I would say like the theater was about 50% full. And then we went back, on Saturday night and decided to take my mom um, because I thought for some reason it'd be a good good thing to take my mom to see this because we always saw horror movies together. Right. Um, so we went Saturday and Saturday was actually pretty quiet, which was weird to me, but I was like, okay, whatever. Um, and I just remember the look of horror on my mom's face during the whole movie. And then afterwards <laughs> she looked at me and she's like, why would you bring me to this? And I was like, oh. I have grossly overestimated your tolerance for teenagers having sex and being brutally murdered, I guess. Okay. Because it wasn't really the horror movies that, like, she and I watched together when we when I was a kid. Like, we watched, like, Aliens and American Werewolf and things like that. So this wasn't quite her cup of tea. But I'll tell you, that I went uh, the last Saturday before my Christmas break was up and I was getting ready to go back down to school. And that theater was jam-packed. Yeah. And because I saw it three times on winter break. <laughs> uh, also, why fitting in uh, a few other great 96 movies like Romeo and Juliet and Beavis and Butthead Do America. Nice. Because um, And I think Private Parts was around that time, too. Private Parts was early 97. Are you? Oh, maybe it was. was it, the soundtrack was out that Christmas, though, or something. Wasn't very, it? very possibly. Okay, because I swear I kind of remember getting both of those Beavis and Butthead and Howard Stern Private Parts for Christmas soundtracks. But I don't know. Anyway, time is time is, you know, fleeting. But mm -hmm. I remember I was like, well, I didn't want to go see it down at the, the college theater because ISU theaters like you always got people who like laughed at stupid things in movies. And I remember seeing The Exorcist down there for Halloween and people were like yelling the whole time and laughing at everything. And it made me really angry. And I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to go and sit through this movie one more time with that crowd because I'm just going to want to like stab everybody on my way out. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it was just like amazing because like the night that we took my mom to see, like maybe there was like one third of the audience was full. So it was pretty quiet. Right. And that was the opening weekend. And then like two weeks, but like by two weeks later, like it was jam packed and I can't even like think of a movie since then that has kind of done that kind of thing where it, it opened, or at least a horror movie, where it opened so slowly, right? And then became like a juggernaut. Yeah, you know, like it became this huge thing. And I even remember like talking because you know I've interviewed all the K and B guys, and they said the same thing. Where like one coming into the movie when they first read the script, they were like, "This is really stupid. Nobody's going to get this movie. Hmm. I can't believe Wes is making this movie." And then them going to see it that opening weekend and thinking, you know, oh, the movie's actually pretty good, but nobody's here. And why are you opening a horror movie in December right. of all times, right. especially right before Christmas? And then all of a sudden, it's like by January, it's like the number one movie in the country. Everybody's talking about Ghostface. It was really cool for me because I think, honestly, like I love Candyman, but like it just felt like it was the first real like movement we'd had in the genre in a really really long time since like the heydays of freddy 
yeah, this was the big horror is back moment, even though it hadn't ever really gone away if you were paying attention, but in terms of it being a mainstream, viable commercial genre, um, it had been, you know, probably since the 80s that horror movies had been huge and Scream ushered in, you know, we could do a whole show on just the Scream imitators or the Scream, not spinoffs, but the, the movies that came out in the wake of Scream's success and that were, you know, immediately greenlit um, to capitalize on the popularity of Scream. So it was definitely like a, a resurgence of the genre in a way that I don't think we've seen since because it... I, I would argue that since Scream, it's never really gone away. The way it kind of went dormant in the 90s, even though there's a bunch of cool shit that came out in the 90s. I'm not saying that there isn't, but like... Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's ever gone away the way it once did. I think it's always been with us now since then. And of course, it, you know, peaks and valleys and all that, but because uh, every once in a while, something will come out like Get Out or It that makes over $100 million and everybody's like, horror is back, but horror never went away. No, horror, horror is always there. I think that's the thing that people sometimes tend to overlook. It's like maybe if it's not doing huge box office numbers in the theater, but as somebody who's eats, sleeps, and breathes and has to cover all this stuff, horror never goes away. Horror didn't go away during the pandemic. Right. Like I was just as busy whenever, you know, when everything was shut down as I am when everything is open up, you know. Right. It's there's there's always horror, I think. And that's, you know, I mean, we can get into a whole discussion about that, but I think that's what makes the genre so great. But it is interesting to me because I really I don't know that I appreciated sort of the uh, the 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 teen horror movement in the 90s while it was happening as much as I do now, because I kind of wish we had that more these days. Cause these days everything is sort of, everybody's in like their thirties. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's a little more serious. That's why like, I love a movie like freaky where it's like, or uh happy death day. Those movies are great. Like, um, I, I miss kind of more teen centric horror. Like, you think that's why I love the fear street movies as much as I did last year. Sure. Um, because we don't seem to be making a lot of horror these days for teenagers that feels like it's made with the intent to entertain them. Right. And I think that's, what's great about scream is like for as much as I loved this movie as a teenager, I still am completely enamored with it as an adult. Yeah, me too. I think I teased my, my scream hot take on the last Craven Craven, where we talked about vampire in Brooklyn and yeah, we talked about it offline. Yes, I will just say what it is here, because the day that the new Scream opened, I revisited Scream 1 and 2, and then I watched 3 and 4 that weekend. But as I revisited the first Scream, it occurred to me that I like it more than I like John Carpenter's Halloween. That is such a bold statement. Um, it is and it isn't, somebody... because I'm on record as like not... I'm on record as appreciating Halloween more than loving Halloween. Like I could watch it and be like, well, that's a masterpiece. That's a, that's a class on how to make a horror movie, but I don't connect to much of it emotionally and scream. I do. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's hard for me to like put the two in the same box because I think about where Craven was in his career making this and what he had available to him in terms of resources and things like that. And then I think about, 
where Carpenter was in his career sure. at the time and where the genre was. Yeah. Um, but I will say if, if it comes down to it, if I'm choosing between the two movies to watch, I'm most likely going to, unless it's the month of October, I probably nine times out of 10 would choose screen. Yeah. Because it's just endlessly rewatchable. Um, it sounds like such a cliche term, but it really, <laughs> I, I just, to, to say that I've seen the original screen movie over a hundred times is not any sort of an overstatement whatsoever. Uh, in fact, uh, I had, I got to have a scream Valentine's day this year. Nice. Um, and Cupid brought me a uh, scream in 4k, um, which mostly was because I wanted the digital code so I could have it on my voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> we'll eventually get to 4k, but we're, 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 we're making strides. Yeah. And then, uh, I got the entertainment weekly magazine as well. Cool. Which was, they did this really when, uh, scream 2022 came out, they did a big scream magazine and all with all kinds of articles and stuff. So that was something that was given to me as well. Well, um, which I'm really excited to dig into because uh, I just haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Um, but yeah, to say that Scream, there's movies when you see them and you know they've changed your life. And I know this sounds, again, so like I'm being overly dramatic, but seeing Scream changed my life. Yeah. Like, it really legitimately, it's changed everything I thought I knew as a horror fan. Like it changed my perceptions of everything because, I mean, I'd had some film studies uh, classes, you know, prior to seeing Scream, like I was already studying media in college, you know, but to me, the way that this movie approaches the horror genre as a whole, just it literally my DNA switched that night. Like I came out of that a completely different horror fan. And there's not a lot of movies that I can say that about. Yeah. It's fascinating to me then that like, that you're having this reaction to the movie, that it changed the way that you felt about horror, that, you know, one of the results of Scream becoming so popular is sort of the birth of Kevin Williamson, not just as a more popular screenwriter, but almost as a brand. Um, and people point to his screenplay and sort of the meta approach as being a key to the film's success. And yet, as you pointed out, and as I read in, like, the Wikipedia almost everybody who was approached for this movie turned it down originally. And we're like, that's dumb. I don't get it. <laughs> it's... Well, that's, and look, that's like I was saying, like all the effects guys, like we're coming into this movie. Right. And they're guys who, you know, they were working with Craven for decades. They've been working in the horror genre for two, two or three decades themselves. And they were all like, what is this? Because right. I think again, and we've talked about this in terms of other movies that Craven has done throughout his career, like Craven, 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 Craven. Um, that's so Craven. Um, oh, we should have called the show. That's so Craven. I feel like we've wow. covered this already. Did we? I think so. Okay. So I didn't just have an epiphany. <laughs> Who knows so. anymore? God, my brain is so dumb these days. But like, I, I really think this movie was like five years ahead of everybody else. And on, I think a lot of that obviously is due to Kevin Williamson's script. But I think you need somebody like Wes Craven to be able to take what's in that script and find a way that's going to make it entertaining. Oh, here goes my dog. The dog's outside. Sorry. That's okay. Um, but to find a way to make it like entertaining and on a level that like 
we can enjoy in that time it's being released. And if you look at it, I mean, you know, and we've talked about this before on other episodes of, you know, at this movie, but like something like Scream 4 was 10 years ahead of where it should have been. Right. 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 You know, because now it's like you look at that story and it's exactly where we are now. Right. And like, so I think there's a lot of people at the time who were ready to write it off because they didn't get it. They didn't get what this shift was going to be in the genre because they didn't think that people were smart enough to be able to play along with the ideas. And again, it's, it's one of those, the first time you see this movie and especially then like it, it legitimately blows your mind. And I, and it it probably doesn't have the same effect for people like discovering it today because so many movies have come out in its wake that, clearly have its influences so i don't know if the that spark is still there but i will tell you like i can remember like you know and i was still watching great horror movies you know throughout the 90s up until this point but there is that very distinct moment when like you're like oh my god like can you do this like are you allowed to make movies and talk about other movies the way this movie did Mm -hmm. none of them had ever done that so honestly, for me, like, I, you know, I get it. I get why people were so nervous about this movie. Um, but like, you know, holy shit, what a great moment. And again, it's it's Craven. You know, it is Wes Craven who not only redefined what horror meant in the 80s. Now he's doing it again in the 90s. Yeah. Like the badass he was. <laughs> Do you think he gets there with Scream in terms of like knowing how to approach the material, knowing how to make it uh, digestible for a wide audience without having done New Nightmare as like a warm-up? No, I don't think so. I okay. think New Nightmare was was definitely... I mean, he was clearly pushing what we thought about in terms of traditional horror cinematic narratives at that point. Right. Like he was already ready to start looking inwards on the genre as a creator and trying to understand, you know, the things that he had established throughout his career and what that meant and, and how do you recontextualize that for where audiences are. And I think also a lot of this comes in the wake of just where 90s cinema was in general. Because you have, you know, the Tarantinos out there doing, you know, making these films that are very forward and they're, but they're also homages and they're, they're trying to mix up the storytelling formula in new ways. You've got movies like Clerks who are kind of pushing boundaries in new ways with barely any money. Um, so I think for me, like, it just was this perfect storm. Like, I don't think you could make Scream in the 80s and I don't think you can make Scream in the 2000s. I think Scream is the epitome of what 90s horror was all about. Is that, is it the engine or the caboose? Like, is it? Is it the chicken or the egg? I don't know. Right, like, exactly. It's, it's, it's hard to tell. But it ends up defining, I think, I think it, it defines the rest of the 90s. But I think the case you're making is also that, like, it is a result of that which came before it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a result of Craven wanting to push himself because he knows, you know, he's not, and like, you know, we talked about this in, in Brooklyn, like he wanted to do something different that he had never really tried before. We saw him try to push himself with New Nightmare, didn't quite work out, you know, box office wise the way he thought it would in terms of, you know, trying to do something completely different with Freddy. 
So meanwhile, he gets this script from this up and coming guy who, you know, this is, I don't remember when Dawson's Creek started because I wasn't super into it. Um, but at, at the point that this came out, like Kevin Williamson wasn't, he was kind of known, but I don't think he was like, no, no. You know think, what I mean? I think, I think Dawson's Creek was after this. Yeah. I mean, that might've been like 97 again. Like yeah. I said, I don't, I don't quite remember like when it hit. I just remember sort of watching it here and there. I was more of a Buffy on the WB. Sure. I, I wasn't super into, into Dawson's Creek. Um, so like to be as ballsy, like after taking a big swing on new nightmare and kind of, you know, we know it's amazing, but at the time it was released, it really wasn't appreciated. So for him to like take a huge swing like that thematically and then kind of have a miss, right? Kind of strikes out a little bit. Does Vampire in Brooklyn kind of strikes out there. What else does he have left to lose at this point but take a chance with this up-and-coming screenwriter's, you know, script that just completely turns the genre on its head? It is. It's it's so ballsy. And to be honest, like, I'm, I, I, you know, knowing, you know, again, unfortunately, because of like the, you know, having Miramax involved. And, was that Dimension or Miramax back then? It was Ooh, Dimension. Good question. Yeah, it was Dimension. Yeah. Um, you know, so like, it's one of those things to like, honestly, I'm kind of surprised at how well it worked out because I know the wine scenes were involved. Uh, to a certain degree, even though I know it was Kathy Conrad who kind of spearheaded it. But like, you know, in the 90s, the wine scenes were very, um, you know, hands and everything. Right. So the fact that they weren't like that with this, Winnie, please, for the love of God. Oh, now she's got all the other dogs barking. Um, you know, it's it's just kind of one of those things where I sit there and I look at this movie and it feels like a miracle. Um that it just that it turned out so well that it does what it does that it makes the career of all these people and like for me like honestly like coming into this i was like oh my god you know nev campbell from party of five is doing a horror movie with wes craven i am there <laughs> like it wasn't even courtney cox because i wasn't even super into friends at that point like i liked it but whatever i was like oh the guy from from hackers is in it that's kind of cool <laughs> um you know it was and then I was like, oh, Drew Barrymore, that's interesting. Yeah. But it, everything about this movie feels like kind of a gamble in a lot of ways. Um, in retrospect, now it almost feels like, well, it all feels like with dull moments. Like, oh, of course this is going to work. Like, look at them. You know, everybody's so great. Like, I just, but at the mo at that time, it just, the balls on this movie. Right. You know, to right. do what it does, to bring in this cast, um, and to become what it became. Like, right. I don't know that we've seen that since, you know? No. I, I mean, Neff Campbell and Courtney Cox were both considered TV stars. Drew Barrymore hadn't had a hit in years. I mean, she yeah. wasn't opening movies the way she would just a couple years later, mostly thanks to the success of Scream. And then she goes on to make, like, The Wedding, the wedding singer, singer, right? And that blows up, and she becomes a full-blown movie star. But she wasn't opening movies like, like she was able to do post-Scream. And then the rest of the cast is, like, mostly unknowns. You have, you know, fake Johnny Depp and, as you pointed out, the guy from Hackers and uh, David Arquette, you know, was in a couple things. But nobody was really, like, David Arquette wasn't opening movies at that point, you know? This nope, is, is pre-Ready to Rumble. 
Yes, it was. Oh, man, <laughs> do I love Ready to Rumble. Oh, goodness. I just think they should have cast somebody. I love Oliver Platt. Like, he's one of my favorite character actors. Oh, no, actors. he is not the right person but for But they should have cast somebody else. I'm sorry, but I just can't. I, like, seriously, at least once a week in our house, we were always like, Sal Banditti, want to wrestle? <laughs> we just throw that out in regular conversation. So I need a T-shirt that says Sal Bandy Russell. Right. So I've been bugging Brian about it for like years. I just rewatched um, Airheads and I forgot that David Arquette was in that. I know, right? Because HBO Max put it on their their, their uh, service. Yeah. And I hadn't seen it in years because the last time I owned it was on VHS. Wow. Yeah. So I haven't I hadn't seen it in decades, and I was like, oh my god! But like for me, like I was just kind of like, oh hey, it's the guy from the Buffy movie. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that's where I knew him from, too. Yeah, so I was just, but it wasn't like I was going to see movies that had the guy from the Buffy movie, you know? <laughs> right. If he shows up, I'm happy about it, but it wasn't like, I was like, oh, I gotta go see the, the you know, Luke Perry's best friend in a movie, um, which is just nice that they were actually really best friends in real life. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, it's just, it's one of those, like, I, every time I watch this movie, like, I always like try to work during it and I just don't get anything done because I get constantly sucked into it. And I think the way that they were able to, again, make a movie that has real stakes to it, but also has a really great sense of humor. But the funny thing is, is that when people call it a horror comedy, it bugs me. Yeah, no, it's not. It's a horror movie that happens to have some humor in it, but it's not a horror comedy. Yeah, because like I just I don't I don't consistently laugh during it. Like to right. me, this isn't like Dead Heat or something. You know what exactly. I mean? like, Where's Piscopo when you need him? <laughs> Should have been the Henry happy. Winkler part. Oh no! Don't say. That. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. I have Scream on right now oh, um, nice. while we're watching while we're doing this, and Henry Winkler just died. So it's oh, funny right, that you just said Henry Winkler. Yeah, R.I.P. the Fonz. Um, but yeah, I think for me, you know, you talked about your hot take in terms of um, Scream and Halloween. I actually have sort of a hot take. Let's hear it. Um, so for me, what I think, <coughs> for as much as the Scream movies, or at least this one, was sort of this meta approach to horror movies and what we, you know, what we as fans expect, you know, expect of them. I actually think the there's sort of this underlying theme that at least plays out in the first three movies where I think Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven were sort of warning people about this impending incel generation that was coming to fruition in the 90s um, that we see sort of culminate like at Woodstock 99 mm-hmm. um, of young men treating women a certain way of having certain expectations of what they are they deserve of blaming women for their problems and let me just put this out here so nobody gets upset (laughs) not all men (laughs) but i think about the the motivations of billy and Stu in this um i think about the motivations of um why can't I think of what's his face, his name? Mickey. 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 Uh, I think about Mickey in part two. I think about Scott Foley in part three, Roman Bridger. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I, I, I was never going to come up with his name, but I knew Scott Foley. Oh, yes. So. 
Yes, he was on some TV show recently, and I was like, oh my god, it's Roman Bridger. Um, I'm I'm the only one who will probably have that kind of reaction. <laughs> I think about a character like Randy, who, you know, the unrequited, you know, right. love slave of Sidney Prescott, as he calls himself in part two. Friend zone. And his, yeah, and how he has sort of these expectations towards her, even in the sequel. Um, and... I just think that there's sort of this underlying examination of what was going on with young men in this country during the nineties and where that was all leading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, to me, that is, I think it was sort of the, the warning of incel culture coming to fruition. So and if you think about what we're seeing currently in our country, like, a lot of those guys were teenagers in the nineties. Yeah, I guess when I think about incel culture, I tend to think of it as being part and parcel with the advent of the internet. That like, hey, without the internet, there's no such thing as incel culture. But obviously, the internet just provided like the conduit for the whole thing, because as Scream is indicating, like it was going on. Those kinds of attitudes and that kind of mentality were taking place pre-internet um and we're going to take place with or without the internet the internet just gave it sort of a, a faster mechanism by which to spread but um so i never thought of that in terms of these movies but i think you're absolutely right well i think and also too like think about like how you know in terms of how ghostface even operates in these movies where he has you on the phone and he's basically going to quiz you and it's like you have to like meet like oh, right. these expectations right. of Ghostface. Like we even see, you know, and especially in this first movie. Um, I just think that there's something really interesting about sort of the expectation. And I don't know, maybe as a female horror fan who decades ago always felt like she had to prove herself. Of course, as soon as you just, say you love horror movies, some guy is going to be like, "All right, what's your, what are your favorites?" I mean, I still deal with it a little bit here and there. I mostly Ugh. ignore those folks on Twitter. We're like, oh, well, if I like something, I clearly don't know anything about right, horror movies right. where I'm like, I know more than you probably forgot, <laughs> but whatever. Um, and that's to say, not to say that I know everything. I still am learning and I still am like absorbing sure, things. Sure. But like this constant idea of having to prove yourself as a woman, right? of of having people constantly blaming you for their own problems. Right. Like, whew, I think that's, you know. The thing is, it's like, I have always loved Nancy, and but I love Sydney just as much because I get it. I get it. I get tired of everybody else making me sort of, you know, the reason for their problems in life. Yeah. Like, take some responsibility. Like, we even see that in Scream 3 where she's like, I've heard all of this before. Like, <laughs> come on, man. Um, and I think, you know, I, and I get a little defensive because I've seen people sort of talk crap about Sydney over the years and I'm just like you're you're wrong you're totally wrong on that because I think there's something really interesting about a young woman coming up at that time and having to navigate through all of these different guys even though Mickey's motivated by Mrs. Loomis um you know basically everybody else putting their problems on her you know she's left to carry the weight of what her mother does Essentially, that's like her legacy is that she has to live with the fact that her mom couldn't keep it in her pants. <laughs> and, you know, and it's it's like it's not even a problem that her her dad deals with. 
it's her problem because that's where we were at that point. Like, right. That's so unfair. Yeah. So, you know, and I think that's why I've always loved it. And honestly to God, like, you know, I love a lot of female characters in horror, but the, it does not escape me that Wes Craven, you know, was the person behind my two favorites. Yeah. Right. Like how that that's, that's so incredibly rare and amazing. Well, and I love, and we'll obviously we'll talk about it as we go through the sequels, but how great that we get to see Sydney through the course of five movies and we get to watch her, you know, grow up and change over time and see how these things affect her. Like that's just completely unheard of in a horror franchise. Obviously we've seen it with Laurie Strode, but it's in like multiple different timelines. And then we have to see her, <laughs> you know, kiss her brother and fall off a building. And then we, she's resurrected in a different timeline. So I can't even count Laurie Strode. Um, and Nancy gets to come back a couple different times, but again, in different iterations, <laughs> sometimes she's Nancy, sometimes she's Heather Langenkamp. It's really just Sydney who gets to come back five times. What kind of crap do people talk about Sydney? I've never heard of such a thing. Oh, that she's just, she's always so dour and so serious and blah, blah, blah. And like, they always like try to talk crap about like the, you know, sort of where she's at in part three. But like, let's be honest. And again, this is something we'll probably talk about again as we get further down. But like, after Scream 2, like, not only does she watch like her pre-med doctor boyfriend get killed like right in front of her with one of the most brutal gunshot <laughs> wounds ever, you know, after having a previous boyfriend try to kill her. Right. Um, you know, and watching all of her friends basically get obliterated. She doesn't feel like she has any sort of like control left. What else are you going to do? I would go hide somewhere. Like, I don't know that I would be, living my life out in the open. Yeah. You know? So I get it. I get where Sydney is at. Sorry, I'm setting my timer. It's meatloaf tonight, kids. Um, <laughs> R.I.P. Oh, yeah. Um, so I get where she's at. Where, like, you know, she in the first movie, she's just a young kid trying to sort of live in the wake of this tragedy that happens with her mom. And the fact is, is that, like, we always kind of gloss over the fact that, like, she walks in on it either when it's happening or at the end of it or in the wake of it, which you have to carry that image in your head for the rest of your life of your parents butchered and raped supposedly. But like, we, we kind of know how that worked out Um, in front of you. Like, Holy shit. That is a lot for a teenage girl to handle. Yeah. Then on top of it, she spends like all like, all this time, like running away from killers who decided they would need to target her for some reason. So when like people kind of pick on her, I get a little pissed. I mean, again, it's because I love Nev Campbell so much. Um, but yeah, I just, I get really bummed out when I see people sort of boiling Sydney down to sort of like these like stereotypes yeah. that we see in other movies, because I don't think Sydney is a stereotypical character whatsoever. No, no. I'm and I you. think, yeah, and I and I love how proactive she is in this movie, like especially in the finale. Like, you know, we've seen other like quote unquote final girls like sort of do a whole lot less to have to survive. <laughs> sure. You know? And like she she really has to she really has to get dirty you yeah. know, at a certain point. Like, you know, again, and this is no disrespect to Laurie Strode, but Laurie Strode hides in a closet 
you know, Dr. Loomis shows up, shoots, you know, Michael a few times and he falls off of, you know, the balcony and like, she's like, was that the boogeyman? That was what Laurie Strode does. <laughs> well, she does stab him with a coat hanger. Yes. Which again, I'm, I don't understand how that would make Michael pass out, but that's okay. <laughs> it's horror movies. I don't, I don't always have to use logic. So. Um, I want to bring up something because I, I've seen it, bef- seen it around before. I should pull up the exact quote because I don't remember what the exact quote is. It's, you know, I like Quentin Tarantino a lot as a filmmaker, but he has said oh, I some think you shit. Post- yeah. I think you posted something about how he said that he didn't think Scream was well-directed. It's not, it, that's not the exact quote. Okay, here it is. I could have imagined doing the first Scream. The Weinsteins were trying to get Robert Rodriguez to do it. I don't even think they thought I would be interested. I actually didn't care for Wes Craven's direction of it. I thought he was the iron chain attached to its ankle that kept it earthbound and stopped it from going to the moon. What? Was there not enough feet shots in it? Like what? I, I mean, there's got to be some feet shots in there. I think this is Wes Craven's best directed film. I, I absolutely agree. And I say that as somebody who holds the original Nightmare and New Nightmare in extremely high regard. But I think this is Craven working in a sense. I, it's tough because I actually think two is pretty spectacular as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into that when we get to two. But I, I agree. I think this is Craven at peak Craven right now. Yeah. Which is why I said, like, as much as I love 80s Craven, I was excited to get into 90s Craven. Because this feels like when he's really just going for it as as a filmmaker and as a storyteller. Well, the that urban, makes me a little bummed out. It makes me super bummed out because it's a crazy thing to say, and everyone's entitled to his or her opinion, and that's fine if he feels like Wes Craven kept it earthbound. But uh, I think this movie does go to the moon, and I think Wes Craven is the reason. I, you know, the urban legend is Wes Craven turned this down because he was trying to get away from doing horror and wanted to do something else. And then people started talking shit to him. Like sometimes the story is that it's a kid. Sometimes the story that it's teenagers and saying that he hadn't directed anything scary since the seventies. And that's what prompted him to go back and do it. And again, I don't know if that story is true or if it's apocryphal, but I like that story because it fits the narrative that I've always believed, which is that he directs this movie like a motherfucker with something to prove. Yeah. And he's Wes Craven. He He has nothing to prove, you know, but like coming off of the disappointment of New Nightmare and the critical and commercial disappointment of something like uh, Vampire in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, you know, he kind of does have something to prove, I guess. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think also, too, like I, I totally agree that he probably, he, you know, he had nothing to prove to me as a, as a fan. Because, like, like I said, I just saw a trailer, and I was like, Wes Craven, Nev Campbell, I'm in. And I'm going to move shit around so I can get home just as fast as I can to go <laughs> see this movie. Um, so for me, he didn't have anything to prove. But the, here's the thing that, like, so many people kind of forget sometimes, and I get it because sometimes I want to – I kind of forget this too. But, like, the movie industry is a business. People have to make money to make movies. That's just how it works. And if you've got a director who's done two movies and they don't do very well financially, it is a risk regardless of who they are Mm -hmm. to attach them to a movie where you need to make it a certain amount of profit. That's why you don't get generally 
you know, when you have somebody come into like the Marvel movies, they've got to have some sort of financial proven track record to a certain degree. Um, or they could bring something to the table that somebody else can't, like somebody like Taika. But even if you look at what we do in the shadows, that movie was made for $1 million and it made like 15 Right. On a limited release. Right. Which is pretty outstanding. Um, you know, somebody like Scott Derrickson may not have seen like the most obvious choice for Doctor Strange, but if you look at, you know, his box office for something like Sinister, which was made for very low money, made a lot of money, looking at like um, the exorcism of Emily Rose, that did extremely well back in the day. Sure, there was War of the Worlds, but I, <laughs> most of that, 99% of that movie was not didn't go sideways because of Scott Derrickson. And I think everybody right. involved with that knew that. So, you know, the thing is, it's like, ultimately you're, and this applies to every director, regardless if they're a director who's just starting out, or they're a director like Wes Craven in 1995, when he's starting a production on this, like you're only as good as your last movie, right? You know, like you're only to studios, to financiers, to the people who are going to basically cut those checks you're only as good as what you've done most recently. Right. And to put Craven in charge of this, I mean, the movie only was like, the budget was less than 20 million. So it wasn't a huge gamble, but it's still $20 million that dimension has to make back, you know? And I think that's, I think that's when they brought in Miramax because I think they knew Miramax because they were so hot with the way that they were marketing movies, especially in the nineties. And you could see, like, all kinds of Miramax movies all over. I think there even is a Clerks box, a VHS box somewhere in Randy's house. I know there's Smoke. Um, I, wa I want to say Clerks is in there, too, because I almost kind of remember that being there. Randy um, would definitely be a Clerks fan. I was a Clerks fan. Are you kidding me? I was a Clerks fan, too. I had yes. My two jobs were working at a convenience store and working at a video store, so Clerks was made for me, man. Well, considering we both worked for Whitehead Pantry. That's right. Yes. So accurate. Yeah. I didn't even like how accurate it was. <laughs> everybody everybody who I worked with at Whitehead, we all watched Clerks. <laughs> we had a copy of Clerks that literally made the rounds amongst everybody who worked there. That's funny. Do you My know I still, I still have dreams all the time about working at Whitehead? Oh, I miss it. I actually kind of miss it. I, I miss do not because little... these dreams are nightmares. Oh, no. I loved my time there. Like I did, like making coffee on the weekends you know, to get ready for the rush. And yeah, I'm like, uh, doing like working in the little deli area. I didn't even mind like stocking the uh, cooler. No, I didn't mind stocking the cooler. I, you know, again, maybe we just had different experiences because I was working 16 hour shifts and. Oh, yeah, no, no. I was working standard eight hour shifts. By so. myself for eight of those, you know, and it was like, uh, yeah, it sucked. But anyway. Oh, yeah. No, they never put me by myself um, just because, you know, I was a young teenage girl. So. Well, this was my father doing this to me, so. Oh, okay. So there's there's a lot we have to unpack <laughs> yeah. there. Okay, so we should get into some therapy right now, right? <laughs> Do you want to talk about some Let's talk about Scream some more <laughs> before I Honestly, break down. Because for me, like, our, we, our wife's head was next door to a liquor store. And uh, Herb, who ran the liquor store, was, like, friendly with all of us. And, like, we were always drinking. Like, Oh, my gosh. I was like 16 years old and my mom would come in to work midnights on the weekends and I'd be drunk. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to sober up before I went home. This is no good. Um, I know. Oh, it was great. It was awesome. So and his, his son was, uh, 
Herb's son, Josh, was in a band who was well-known through my high school and stuff like that. I actually interviewed him once for our newspaper and stuff. But, uh, yeah. Oh, it was great, man. We just got away with everything. We'd steal cigarettes. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was great. Yeah, we had very different experiences. Yeah, I guess we did. I had fun. I, I miss it. I actually... It was funny. I was going through an old box of something, uh, like old stuff that I found uh, last year, and I found one of my uh, white hen polos. Oh, nice. Doesn't fit anymore, but I was just like, it was like the maroon one with the yeah, uh, yeah. the gold orangish embroidery on yeah, it. I yeah, was like, yeah. I was like, oh, what a time. Like the cigarette guys would come in and they, the Marlboro guys would always give us like free swag and stuff. So I used to have like 10 different Marlboro lighters and a jacket and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The magazine guys, whenever they'd come in and switch out the magazine, they'd always give us like old copies after they'd write them off and stuff. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Good times. Yeah. The 90s. Oh. <laughs> oh. What a time. But um, sorry. Yeah, we just kind of totally got sucked into that. But yeah, I, you know, I, I think there is. Here's the thing. I love Robert Rodriguez as a director. Um, I, I do think that, you know, obviously some movies that he's done are better than others. Yeah. Which is the case for every single director out there. I don't know that I would have had the same response to Scream if it had been Robert Rodriguez directing, but I do love the faculty. I like the faculty. It's obviously impossible to say, like, what would this have looked like if Robert Rodriguez has directed it? But it's hard for me to conceive of anyone directing it better than Wes Craven. If I felt the same about it as Tarantino does, and I was like, well, Tarantino, or Wes Craven's the problem with it, then yeah, I'd be all for the Robert Rodriguez version. But since I feel like this was directed better than anything he's done, uh, directed as well as anybody has directed a horror movie before, um, it's hard for me to say that somebody else could have done it better. Yeah. I was going to say also, because you mentioned um, Carpenter and Halloween and stuff, do you love sort of the overlay of Halloween in the screen? Because it was, we were, I was having a discussion with my other half before we did this podcast, before he left for work. And the funny thing is, is like, I, I don't like, I don't think you have a movie like Scream without Halloween. Right. Because you need, but I, but at the same time, like, I think you can have a movie like Nightmare on Elm Street without Halloween, if that makes sense. And I kind of, it's one of those, like, I remember thinking it was weird when I was younger, how much this final act in in uh, Stu's house like has all these like Halloween moments in it. Like they use the score for Christ's sake. Right. Um, as an adult, I think it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And again, yeah, this movie doesn't exist without Halloween if for no other reason than because it's born <laughs> out of Kevin Williamson's fandom of Halloween. You know, like he's like, I'm going to write a slasher movie about teenagers because that's my favorite movie. Um, but the way that they weave Halloween into the film is pretty brilliant. Now I want to see, I hope Halloween ends has a sequence where the characters are watching Scream. Oh my gosh. And yes, then, let's do this full circle. And then they get to the last act, and so they're watching Scream, and they're watching Randy watch Halloween, and then it just confuses everything we know about reality. And then <laughs> Evil Dies Tonight. Evil dies tonight. Maybe it finally does after it watches Scream. I always thought it was really fun, too, that they have the um, the sort of tie-in between Scream and Halloween H20. Because at the beginning, Casey Becker's parents, when they come home, 
her dad says, you know, go down to the McKenzie's house. Right. And that's the same thing that uh, Lori says to Michelle Williams's character at the end of H20, where she's like, you know, take the car, go over to the McKenzie's. Doesn't she say it to Tommy and what's her name at the end of Halloween? Yeah. Well, is it the McKenzie's or is it somebody else? Oh, I thought it was the McKenzie's, but I, somebody who knows Halloween better than me is like, no, no dumbass. Be- it, it might it might be that as well, but I just thought because the reason that I always thought the connection was a little different with Scream and Halloween H twenty is because they're both in Northern California. Okay. So I always kind of thought like, was this like just a few towns over from where Laurie Strode is about to meet Michael right. Myers again? Right. And like, what if Michael Myers shows up in Woodsboro, like, and then suddenly like Ghostface has to deal with Michael Myers? <laughs> I'm into it. I, you know, let's, let's see that crossover. Let's get in a time machine and go see that. Yeah. I'm curious, but yeah, I think it's it like Ghostface died by stabbing. Michael Myers died by fire. How can we use How can that? We use that. Oh my God. I was watching Freddy versus Jason a few weeks ago when that moment came on and I was like, yes. Oh, classic. So it's so something, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. If we ever do like peripheral episodes of Craven Craven once we're done, I think Freddy versus Jason should be one of them because there's there's a lot to discuss there. I don't love that movie, but then I read that book and uh Yeah. It it made me appreciate the version we got. I I definitely loved it more when it came out than I do now, but yeah. I, I can at least embrace the warts of it. Um but I do, I do see the the problems with it a bit more these days than I did back in two thousand and three. Yeah. So sometimes hindsight isn't always twenty twenty, <laughs> or it's not always a twenty twenty in a good way. I guess is the best way to put that. Right. But it's still fun, and you know, you got the uh, Zach Ward being utterly terrifying. So there, that's something. Well, that just goes without saying because it's Zach Ward. Yeah, that is true. It's like he was born for it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I it's it was one of those things also, too, when we came into this episode, I was like, how are we going to talk about Scream and not talk about things that everybody's been talking about for 25 years plus already? So I'm glad that we've had sort of a better discussion than I thought I was going to be able to have because I was like, what do I say that hasn't been said already? No, never doubt me. Um, why is it that we can't get the uncut version on any format. Like, I had the Laserdisc, which was the uncut version. And I never saw it because I never had Laserdisc, so I've never even seen it. It boils down to, like, a couple extra seconds. It The differences are so minor that that's why I can't understand why we can't get it. Like, we see what happens to Casey's boyfriend um, more than we do in the theatrical cut. Because in the theatrical cut, it's just kind of a close-up of his face. We hear some stuff. And then we cut back to him and his guts are kind of spilled out, right? Right. Yeah, so in the in the uncut, I believe we see the guts like kind of spill out. And then when we zoom in on not zoom in, when we do that run up to Casey when she's hanging in the tree, what they ended up doing was like taking every other frame out, which is why it has that kind of skip frame jerky movement as it moves in towards her. And I actually think it's pretty effective. Um but those frames are restored, so it's a lot smoother and longer in terms of seeing Casey strung up in the tree. But 
I don't miss it. I'm not like, oh man, the uncut version is the superior version. Um, but I and and I think there's a few more graphic um, stabbings at the end when Stu and Billy are like stabbing each other. I think we get to see a little bit more of that if memory serves. I haven't seen it since my laserdisc player was operational, which was like probably the early 2000s. So it's been a long time since I saw the uncut version, but I just think it's so weird that they would release it on laserdisc and then never on DVD, never on Blu-ray, now not on 4K either. Yeah, you'd feel like somebody's going to put it at some t- at some point because somebody's going to want to make money, right? You like... would think. I mean, it, it, <laughs> horror fans are such that they would rebuy it for a few I extra totally... seconds of gore, you know? like I would totally. Right. Yeah, I... Um... Yeah, I don't I don't get it because I mean, I get it why like these things were probably cut because of the MPAA, because especially in the 90s with with violence and stuff like that. Like, I get it. Um, But, you know, I I just I I don't even know why that wasn't even like a VHS. Right. Iteration, because how many times have we bought like on VHS or even DVD, like the uncut version of a movie? Right. You know, so it's that's that's weird to me um yeah that's a little bit of a bummer but i would totally totally buy that so if you're listening paramount because i think paramount picked up the home media rights now for the franchise okay uh, did they are, are they the ones who put out the 4k i don't remember you think i would know because i just literally added it last night they put out scream 5 so I'm assuming that they have the and they've bundled they're bundling Scream and Scream Five together. So then it also. has to be Paramount, I would think. Yeah, so they must have picked up the rights. Okay. Um, but yeah, so like, come on, I'll give you more money. That's fine. Can I just say too, like, we recently upgraded to a 4K TV and a 4K player, and I've really set a rule for myself that I'm not going to upgrade movies that we own on Blu-ray to 4K. And then last week, Scream Factory announced Life Force on 4K. (laughs) And I was like, well, for Toby Hooper, I could make an exception. But they're only putting out the theatrical cut in 4K. And the extended edition, which is the better movie, is just going to be a Blu-ray. So I'm not going to upgrade. All right. I get it. Thank you. Because you know what? What will probably happen is you'll probably get the other thing in a few years anyway. So... You could probably wait it out. Yeah, I'm going to. Yeah. I wanted to bring something up because I saw somebody mention this on Twitter, and I don't remember who it was. Oh, I, okay. So I know that there was a question that kind of got posed around the release of Scream 5, and a bunch of people jumped down this poor person's throat. And again, I don't remember who it is, so if you're listening, please understand I was totally on your side, and I only saw the, the, the whole stupidness of the situation <laughs> that you had to deal with um, really briefly. But I remember somebody talking about how they wondered if uh, Scream was sort of a version of an American Gialli. Um and sort of if that if it had any sort of like Giallo tendencies or undertones or things like that. And everybody jumped down their throat like, how dare you say this? This is that's ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. But like the more that I've watched this and the more that I've gotten more well acquainted with Italian horror, I think there might be a little something to that because also I'll tell you what, uh, one of the things that popped up in my head was the scene when Sydney's in 
Stu's attic, and she's trying to get out before she jumps and hits the boat. There's all these really weird little dolls around, and it just totally reminds me of Brett. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, maybe there's something to that. And you are way more well-versed in Italian horror. So I'm curious if you have an opinion. I wouldn't call it a giallo, but I could definitely see where somebody would make a case that like, well, yeah, but it's got this gloved, masked killer. There's the mystery component. Um, there's, you know, some psychosexual motivations for what's going on in terms of Billy and Sydney's mom. And um, There's a lot of eye close-ups. There's way worse <laughs> questions you could ask. You know, there's way, there's other movies that I would be like, are you out of your mind? No. <laughs> But I think to ask it of Scream, I think you could say, like, yeah, there's definitely influences. I wouldn't call it an American giallo, but I think there are definite influences there. Yeah, I would be really curious to have that discussion with Kevin Williamson. Uh, I was not deemed worthy enough to interview him when he was doing his sort of... Uh, legacy interviews for Scream 5 because apparently, I don't know, doing this for 15 years, you still don't get to talk to certain people. Whatever. Um, but, I, you know, I think that there's there's probably aspects to this that maybe he and Craven talked about that we don't really know about necessarily because I know they also kind of had a falling out there for a while and right. things like that. Um, but I feel like enough time has passed where I think if you would ask him certain things, he might be on bored with it but i mean because like if you think about it like a lot of you know again going kind of going to deep red and sort of um you know having a mother who acts a really bad way and therefore like these things are playing out in front of their kid like this that doesn't seem too far-fetched right um you know so i i think that there's something there i think you know i don't think you could just outright say no you're incredibly stupid person for even saying that i think it was a kind of a bummer as i think what happened was is that when they were said that um the fangor and i say this as somebody who works for fangori and this is no disrespect to fangori but i think they immediately were just like no and i was like yeah but i think there's a discussion there i think that there's something you could i, I think there is things about this that like if you're somebody who is passionate about giant horror i mean yeah, you can make it a case for a lot of different movies. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure it's a victim of the debates that came out around Malignant because James I Wan think... initially had kind of said, like, oh, it's kind of my giallo, and it's like, it's not really, but there are definite well, influences. Well, he didn't say it was his Well, here's the thing, though. Everybody misinterpreted him because I actually have an interview, and I, you know, and we talked about Italian horror in general. Yeah. But he never really said... Like, he was specifically going for Jolly. Like, he talked about his love for Italian horror. Yeah. But it wasn't like he went out to make his own straight-up Jolly movie. Right. Okay. And so people, I think, just sort of jumped on Jolly, and you saw, you know, the marketing, you know, didn't help either because it was, you know, an image of a gloved hand with a with a weapon, you know, and it gives off sort of those vibes and everything And like the girl's that. eye. Yeah, yeah, and you know, with the with the other imagery and stuff like that. So it it's kind of a bummer that like some people think that that's the only type of Italian horror that actually <laughs> exists because right. there is a lot. Right. You know. Um but yeah, I think, you know, 
we should do an Italian jolly like series of podcasts. I don't know. All right. Like like we need more podcasts. Um, <laughs> I already dominate. I already have to. You already have to put up with me once a month, maybe sometimes twice a month. So let's hope so. Um, but yeah, I you know, it's just I you know, for me, I'm always about trying to find sort of new connective tissue mm-hmm. when it comes to that kind of stuff, like. You know, if somebody wants to tell me that they think that there's aspects of Happy Death Day that feel like Italian horror, all right, let's have a conversation about it. I don't know for sure. It's been a while since I've seen the Happy Death Day movie. But, but like, sure, why not? Let's have that discussion instead of sort of shutting down the conversation. Right. So outright. And people were just jumping all over them. So, again, if you're listening, I'm here to tell you I think you were onto something. All right. I don't know if it's as overt and maybe if, if it just sort of, cosmically it lined up but maybe it wasn't intentional but it just sort of happened that way but you know i think there's 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 a little bit of something to that 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 nugget of an idea yeah i think i think there are definite influences you know and whether those are direct influences whether that's kevin williamson and wes craven saying like let's do this and this and this because we happen to like these movies or if it's the influence of those movies on the movies that influenced Kevin Williamson, which is also just as possible, you know, um, either way, I think there are definite things you can point to and say like, yeah, this seems to, this reminds me of this genre or whatever. Yeah. I I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely shut that down. Even if I don't agree that it's a one-to-one, like, yeah, this is an American giallo. Yeah, I will say, um, because I was, you know, doing the reading and stuff for this uh, the other night, and I was surprised that apparently before this, that Craven was supposed to do the remake of The Haunting, which I didn't realize. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Maybe that movie would have been good. Then. No, I we would know. have been denied the great Jan de Bont version. Oh, boy. And I, I say that as a Jan de Bont fan, but oh, boy. But what are we talking about? Speed? Yeah. I'm not a I Twister mean, guy, so... Uh, I don't love Twister either. Yeah. My other half, like, freaking loves... No, a lot of people do. Every time I come out as, like, a not being a Twister guy, I get a lot of pushback, because people love it. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I just... I don't really love um, Helen, Helen Hunt. Hunt. No, I know that about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... I know. I just. I, I think maybe just because I have such a love for him as a cinematographer. Sure. You know, because I just I think about like you know, as a kid, like really loving like something like Jewel of the Nile. Oof. Like you don't love Jewel of the Nile? No, I love Romancing the Stone, but Jewel of the Nile is one of the first movies I ever saw as a kid that I was like, that didn't work. <laughs> oh, I love both of them. Oh, I mean, no. I love Romancing the Stone better, but I, I love yeah. Jewel of the Nile. Um, and like Cujo just felt like, like you could feel the sweat yeah. in that movie. Like it almost was hard to breathe. Or you think of like something like, you know, uh, die hard dog. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So no, he's a great I mean, cinematographer, but yeah, as a director, I mean, he made speed, which is an all time classic. Don't get yes. me wrong. Yes. But his other directorial efforts kind of leave me cold. I finally saw speed too, by the way. Oh, I know you told me. <laughs> Oof. It's a, it's a really good one. Oh, it's another oh. Jan de Bont joint. Oh, boy. So, you're, so you're not a uh, fan of the uh, 
the is that's the, he did the Laura Croft Tomb Raider sequel, right? He did the second one, which I never saw. I saw the first one, which I want to say was Simon West, and I completely forgot that movie. I don't remember much of it, to be really honest. Yeah. I just realized that. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. But yeah, anyway, am I glad that we didn't get Wes Craven's The Haunting and got Scream and said yes? Yeah, I yes, would have loved to have gotten both. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, you know, maybe what if he had done The Haunting, though, and then that, like, sucked? Oh, absolutely, and which then, it very we well could have. Scream. Yeah, exactly. Or we get the Robert Rodriguez scream or something, you know? Yeah. So, you know, it could have... It's it's interesting when you always kind of think about the projects that could have, would have, should have. Yeah. But, you know, we have Scream instead, so yeah. that's good. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, and our next movie is going to be Scream 2 because, gosh, they cranked that baby out a year later. That's what she said. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, again, it's one of those. I, 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 it's funny. I can still remember like all of my experiences with the Scream movies, uh, seeing them in theaters. But I do remember like because um, I want to was was I know what you did last summer. Did that come out before Scream Two or after? I believe before. I, okay. Yeah. But I think I it came out them. between the two of them. Okay, because I remember going to and seeing Scream Two and. I know what you did last summer with my friend Sharon from college. Okay. So, and we went to the movie theater. Oh gosh, I forget where her parents live, but it's like it's like a mall. Okay. That just says nothing. No. <laughs> There's a lot of. Oh, a movie theater at a mall? You don't say. Yeah, I know what you did last summer. It came out in October. And Scream Two yeah, didn't come out she... till December, so. Yeah, yeah, because I remember she came home from school because I was back home at that point because my mom sucks. So uh, <laughs> anyway, we won't get into all that. Um, but yeah, I, are you okay? So because obviously this was originally supposed to be called Scary Movie, and subsequently we then get the Scary Movie franchise. Yeah. After this, do you feel do you feel like this movie would have been as impactful had it been named Scary Movie, or do you? Do you think that regardless of the title, it still would have rose above it? I think it probably would have been a hit no matter what. Because um, I don't think Scary Movie is a bad title, and I get what they were going for. Scream is probably better in terms of letting people know it's a horror movie and not a comedy. Yes, it is a Scream Baby, as Matthew Lillard tells us at one point. Right. Yes. God, how great is Matthew Lillard? He's great. Can we just talk about Matthew Lillard for like 30 minutes? Yeah, like, absolutely. And the thing that's so great about Matthew Lillard is that he's genuinely a really nice guy. That's what I hear. Like, did you talk to him at Flashback that year or not? No, I never talk to famous people. Yes, you do. I make you do it. I'm too scared. Oh, that's right. You only go after the pretty ladies, like the <laughs> Kathleen Kinmonts and the Danielle Harris's. That's, that's, that's what Patrick goes after. Um, yeah, I was like, because I, I did the panel with Skeet and Nev yeah. and Matthew before they did screening that night. But it was like all three of us, so it wasn't like that cool. <laughs> um, but the next day, like, because I brought my screen poster and I was like, I was so nervous. And uh, Mia from Flashback was like, oh, I'm going to take you around and everything. 
And I started with Nev and I was like, oh my God, I feel like such a dork. And I could barely say like five words to her because she's so freaking cool. Um, and by the way, if anybody's ever written off the movie Skyscraper, hey, look, it's not the most inventive action movie you're ever going to see. But I'll tell you what, she's really freaking good in it. And she's like kind of an like a badass. And she does like a lot of really cool action stuff. So, you know, if you want to see Nev doing something a little different, I like Skyscraper a lot. Um, so her, I kind of was like, eh, you know, I was really nervous. Skeet, kind of the same way, but he was kind of a little aloof that weekend. But I'll tell you what, like, Mia ended up leaving me at Matthew Lillard's table. And between the Scream movies, the Scooby-Doo movies, which are amazing, and I will always go and champion them, uh, especially part two, um, and Hackers, you know my love for Hackers. I do. Like, like we actually had, like, a 20-minute conversation about Hackers. And he was so nice that he had a hacker's photo there. And that's like one of the movies that like Brian and I bonded over like when we first started dating. Cause I thought nobody else liked hackers. I thought I was like in this alone. And he was like, Oh my God, I love hackers. And I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> I was like, wait, you love clue and hackers. Like, who are you? I've been waiting my whole life for you. <laughs> um, he actually signed a photo for Brian. Nice. For hackers nice. That we have, we have in the house and stuff. And so, He's just like, and I remember seeing him like interacting because they had the mystery machine there. And like every little kid that came up to him that weekend, he never like was pushing them through. Like he just had to get to the next person. Right. Like he genuinely was just hanging out with all these little kids who were just so excited to meet Shaggy. And like, and I'm not saying that like there aren't other great people who do conventions. But he just genuinely looked like he was having such a great time. And I always think of that. And he's just freaking awesome. And we are so lucky that we had um, 90s Matthew Lillard because he was also an SLC punk, right? Yes, he was. Yes, which is another movie that nobody ever talked about. And Brian brought up once. And I was like, no, you did not just say that. <laughs> so. so big Matthew Lillard fan here. I will start the fan club immediately. All right. All right, I just have to see Wing Commander and then I can join. Oh, I haven't. I haven't seen Wing Commander. Well, then you have Maybe no business. I know running I the know. fan club. That's true, but you know what? I did audibly uh, cheer when he shows up in Blood Sucking Bastards. So I don't even remember him <laughs> showing up in that movie. Yeah, he does like a little cameo in it. All right, I don't remember much of yeah. that movie. I saw it. Yeah, it's super fun. It has the the gal from um, the collection in it, who's in that Take Back the Night that's out now, and Fran Kranz, who now is like an award winning uh, yeah, director, right, right. and uh, Pedro Pesca, uh, Pedro Pascal, who's you know doing some Star Wars type stuff these days. Haven't heard of him. You know, yeah, but yeah, he plays like it's like a, a little cameo. He shows up for like a meeting at the office. He I don't even think he has, he might have like one line in okay. it. Okay, huh. so. But uh, yeah, I got very excited. Sure. So I was I was very, very, very stoked when he popped up. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, yes, that was me. So. Um, all right. Well, I guess we can uh, wrap it up. We had a fun conversation about Scream, and we'll be back next month to talk Scream 2, which I'm excited about because Scream 2 is a lot more polarizing than I realized. Yeah, it's interesting. We didn't even really talk about, like, the, the amazing soundtrack, but we can kind of talk about 
the soundtracks as we go through the movies because I kind of love all three the the first three soundtracks like immensely. Scream Two is the one that ends with a collective soul song, right? It does. Not cool. Not cool. Scream Two. Not cool. I I like Collective Soul in the nineties. Collective Soul has one good song, and it's the one from Varsity Blues. Look, it doesn't have Creed in it. Oh, that's right. Is that three? That's three. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, I know. So, all the more but reason yeah, to not like three. One has the best soundtrack. All right. Any case, you yeah. know, it does. One has Republica on it, which automatically makes it super cool. So, all right. so we'll go with that. But anyway, I know there's like, we, we literally could have done this for like another hour or so, but everybody would hate us by the time we were done. I'm sure, so. <laughs> well, this was fun. Thank you for talking about this movie with me, Heather. Twist my arm, I guess, but I somehow was able to be like, "Oh, I guess I'll talk about Scream." Yeah. Wait, we so, didn't we didn't even establish this, but I think it's true. Is this your favorite Wes Craven? Yeah. That's what I thought. I mean, it's 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 literally like on a scale of one to ten, this is my ten. Nightmare is like nine point nine. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's you know. It's it the the differences are so minute, but yeah, it's it is my favorite. Yeah, right on. Yeah, so you know, I get it. If somebody's like, "Oh, nightmares, whatever," it's fine. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna split hairs, you know. But yeah, this for me is is peak peak Craven. Peak Craven. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. We will see you in a month for Scream Two. Thanks again, Heather. Thank you. Uh, eh, 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 eh.